The following audio is from a sermon series entitled Practicing the Way of Jesus, a study on the Sermon on the Mount. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Matthew 5, 31 through 32. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, Sacred City. If you are new to our church, my name is Justin and I am one of the pastors here. I'm really glad that you chose to join us today for worship. We have been praying for you and we hope that you find what you're looking for here um, at Sacred City Church. I am preaching via video this morning because I am finishing up uh, my quarantine from contracting COVID-19. My plan is to be back uh, worshiping with you next Sunday, Lord willing, but for the time being, you'll have to put up with me uh, via digital, right? And just to let everyone know, I feel completely fine. My house is, my, my home's doing well. My kids are doing well. My wife's doing well. I feel fine. And uh, we'll be back to normal hopefully next week. And uh, this morning, we are continuing our series studying Jesus's most famous sermon, his Sermon on the Mount. And once again, he kind of <laughs> drags us into dangerous waters. Last week was... Uh, you could say a controversial topic, a controversial sermon, uh, Jesus teaching on sex, lust, and adultery. You can go back and find that on our podcast, uh, our Sacred City Church podcast, the sermon's there, and then I did a follow-up podcast from home. I had uh, I was quarantined this week, and so didn't have much to do, so we got a lot of questions um, regarding sex, lust, and adultery, and so I did a follow-up podcast answering all of those questions Last week, and you can go find that on our Sacred City Life podcast. So we've got two podcasts to keep the the biblical content going, to shape our worldview, to help us live in this crazy world uh, that we're living in right now. So please download our Sacred City Church podcast and download our Sacred City Life podcast. Um, I'm even recording a podcast this week with um, Dr. Paul Maxwell on Marxism that I'm really looking forward to. So you'll be, uh, keep your eyes open for that and be on the lookout for that. So now back to our topic this morning, Jesus is teaching on marriage and he's teaching on divorce. And what we're gonna find out right away is Jesus holds a view of marriage that is almost unheard of in today's world. And because of his understanding of marriage, he holds a view of divorce that is much different than what most people in our society believe. Maybe even some of us, maybe even if we asked our children, what do you think about divorce? What do you believe about divorce? I bet they would say something much different than what Jesus says here in our text today. Now, why is that? Well, in our culture, we place individual happiness as the highest ideal, okay? Um, Philosophers call this a telos, the goal, the end. What's the purpose of humanity? Well, scripture says our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. 
But in America, we flip that around and say, no, the, the greatest ideal for humanity is the pursuit of happiness. Two of our most beloved mantras are, do whatever makes you happy and don't judge anyone else's decisions because they're doing what makes them happy. Now, most of us, we might not say these things outwardly. We might not ascribe to them, but we actually believe these mantras so deeply that Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce sound to us like nails on the chalkboard, right? They sound judgmental. It sounds... Um, you know, patriarchal, it sounds old-fashioned, it, it just doesn't sound good to us. Now, what, what's going on there? Well, because we believe belief A, we reject belief B. What do I mean by that? Because we believe that human happiness is the highest ideal, we reject anything that seems to go against human happiness or human freedom to pursue that happiness, okay? Now, let me clarify something right away. Jesus isn't against personal happiness. He just is against elevating per personal happiness to the highest ideal. Jesus is pro-happy. We know that because he begins the whole sermon on, with the Beatitudes, which are happy are those, or human flourishing are those, or blessed are those who, who live this way, right? Jesus is pro-happy. But Jesus goes deeper than personal, circumstantial, immediate happiness. He wants us to flourish, okay? And he wants humans to flourish, not just personally, but kind of communally as well. So at, he wants human flourishing or human happiness to be pushed down into or pushed out into all levels of society. Now, okay, well, what makes up a society? Well, think of it like this. You've got individuals, that's the smallest piece of a society, right? And when we're obsessed with our personal happiness, what we're really obsessed with is that smallest number of a society, individuals, okay? Now, they're important, but that's not all, that's, that's not everything that makes up a society. Out of those individuals, you got what? The next smallest unit is families, right? And out of that, you get organizations, all kind of different organizations, economic, or, economic organizations, social organizations. Then out of that, you get cities, and then you keep going. Maybe you've got counties and states and countries, and you keep on going, and you've got the global uh, community of humans as well. Now, here's what I want you to see. Sometimes human flourishing so at all levels of that society, and our personal individual happiness are actually at odds with one another, okay? So let me, really simply, what's good for my family is sometimes at odds with what makes me happy, right? Sometimes I wanna come in, I just wanna sit down and watch TV, and I don't feel like taking my kids to the park, right? And so my, what I perceive is my personal happiness, sitting, sitting down and just vegging out in front of the TV, and the, the flourishing of my family, my family, you know, taking my family to a park, I know this is going to be better for my family. I know this is going, and eventually this will actually probably result in some of my happinesses too. But these two values are kind of at odds with one another. And that 
And as that goes, it echoes out into the rest of society and the rest of the way we organize society as well. So let me just play this scenario out really quick as it pertains to marriage and divorce. We believe as a culture, foundationally, almost as a reflex, it's not really the thinking part of our brain, it's more of our gut. We just go with our gut and we feel this way. It's what, again, philosophers call presuppositions, that we believe these things somewhere down in our gut, maybe we've never evaluated them, but that's just what we believe in our gut, that people should do what makes them happy, okay? Almost all Americans believe this, whether they're inside the church or outside the church, whether they're right wing or left wing, left wing, they almost all believe this reflexively as a foundation you know, of what it means to be American. That's probably because it's in the Declaration of Independence, right, the pursuit of happiness, that it is our highest ideal. Well, here's what happens. When we believe that in our gut, we bring that ideal into the institution of marriage, into our relationships. And there's a lot of problems with that. One of them is the almost constant fluctuation of what makes us happy, right? Think of it as kind of the market, right? Do you realize how volatile the market of your happiness is, right? Today, you are totally into one thing, Six months down the road, you might be totally into another. Do you realize how easily that market on your personal happiness, how that market can be manipulated by our culture, right? Your desires can be hijacked very easily. You, you just meeting a new person can change what you're into, right? The entertainment choices that you make, what shows you watch influences what you desire, what you like, what you enjoy, the books you read, the professors you have in school, right? And of course, all of the marketing that's targeted personally towards you in social media, all of that can manipulate what you want down in your gut and maybe not even, it's, a common theme in, in um, modern marketing is marketers don't want you to think. They want you to act without thinking. They want you to be led by your gut to purchase that product impulsively, to, to go to Amazon and buy now right away without thinking about why am I wanting to buy this thing? Am I doing this for, you know, if you want, they want you to evaluate, you know, they don't want you to evaluate the thinking behind the desires that are going underneath, Right? Our desires, our, what makes us happy can be hijacked by marketers. Now, what, what does that have to do with marriage? I have watched many people um, get married, they have a good family, they have a good, you know, a good home, they, they love each other, and then let's say one, let's say the wife decides after having a few kids that she wants to focus on herself a little bit and she wants to get in shape. Now that's a good thing. That's a good, that's a good desire. Maybe she wants to honor God with her body and she wants to get out there and get healthy. And that's great. So what does she do? Well, she joins a gym and she starts focusing on what she eats and on working out and, and her body starts to change. 
And I've watched this scenario play out where all of a sudden, as she gets more and more into fitness and her life changes so radically that she begins to lose all interest in her spouse, right? He won't work out with me. He doesn't want to eat healthy. And before long, see, the market has shifted here. Her desires have shifted and the market has shifted. And now before long, she's finding herself more and more interested in a new guy at the gym. And now you have a problem, right? Her personal happiness is leading her one way, but longtime flourishing is in the other direction. The flourishing of her family, the flourishing of her children, the flourishing of her maybe even church community that she's a part of of, that they're going to have to take sides if she were to divorce and go after this new guy. See, I, I want you to see what's, what's going on here. One, in that scenario, that person believes her personal happiness is an ultimate value, right? If she's going to pursue that new relationship, she believes her desire for personal instantaneous happiness is higher than the ideal of her family succeeding or her, or her family flourishing, right? Two, what makes her happy is constantly changing. And so in order to be happy, she has to pursue this new relationship. Well, what this means for our relationships, it's actually devastating for our relationships. It's one of the reasons why long-term committed marriages are so rare in our society today. Because with this idea, if we have this idea of human happiness as foundational and as the ideals, one of our highest ideals, what it means for our relationship is that I can never be certain that who I am with is a person that is going to make me happy forever. See, I'm changing all the time. They're changing all the time. I don't know in five years if she's going to make me happy anymore right? And therefore, the institution of marriage, the covenant of marriage is going to be very weak and the family is going to be weak. Because if, you're, if you are with someone who no longer makes you happy, you're just going to leave and go look for someone new who you believe will make you happy in this moment. Now, just pointing a couple things out. This cycle, this American cycle, this Western cycle is really destructive in many different ways. One, you're, if you follow this pattern, you're always going to be um, in the immature stages of love and relationships, right? This desire actually hijacks many people's goals for long-term, stable, and committed love because you're at the mercy of marketers. You're at the mercy of this volatile market of your own happiness. What are you into now? What are you into then? What are you going to be into in 10, 15 years from now? And if you're just chasing what you're into all the time, you're always going to be in the first level of love, that infatuation stage that's very immature, very unstable, and very just emotional. Two, following this pattern and having this ideal of human happiness as the ultimate ideal also breaks apart the family. The very foundation of any stable society is the family. And that family is really under attack right now in our society. And when you, when you divorce and when you move on and you break apart a family, um, it hurts kids. This is this is not an opinion. This is not just philosophy. This is not just religion talking. There is verifiable statistical evidence of how detrimental divorce is upon the development of children. Um, the majority of people in prison, the, I could go on and on about, about 
um, you know, having, having, having children before you get married, on poverty rates, educational rates. Divorce is detrimental to our children, and it causes all kind of relational and emotional damage. Right, you gotta choose sides. You guys had friends together, now you gotta choose sides. You guys went to the same church, now you gotta, uh, he's gonna go to one church, she's gonna go to other. This ricochets out into our society at large and damages other cultural institutions and societal relationships in a myriad of different ways. Okay, so this is just some three simple ways that it's really bad for our society as a whole and it limits human flourishing, right? Personal happiness as our ultimate ideal destroys, limits, breaks apart long-term human flourishing at all levels of society. So, what should we do? Well, maybe we should actually evaluate, we should do what the marketers don't want us to do, we should think about our presuppositions. Now, that's kind of hard to do because they're presuppositions, right? They're underneath the surface, they're down in our gut, they're down in our heart. Well. And so we need to read philosophy or we need to hear preachers talk about these presuppositions and we should evaluate them. Maybe we should ask ourselves, do I want to flourish in the long term or do I just want to be happy right now? Jesus wants us to flourish, right? I want us to flourish. I want our church to flourish. I want our missional communities to flourish. I want our cities to flourish, our counties, our state, our country to flourish. And so I think we should evaluate some of these presuppositions and we should take a look at them and say, you know what, maybe, maybe my happiness isn't the ultimate value. Maybe I should have something else like human flourishing as an ultimate value. So with that in mind, I want us to take a look at our text, okay? I want us to evaluate what Jesus says here on marriage and divorce. And before we do that, let me pray for us. Father, we all come into this gathering from different places. Some of us have been divorced. Some of us maybe feel like we're on the brink of divorce. Um, and, uh, and so we, we come into this text maybe feeling vulnerable, maybe feeling afraid, maybe feeling hurt, maybe feeling judged. And so we need you to speak to us. We need you to uncover some of our presuppositions and show us that you're not trying to be mean to us. You're not being judgmental, but you're actually trying to lead us to the waters where we can flourish, where we can be satisfied, where we can drink and never reach the bottom. And so would you do that for us today? Would you help me? Would you think through my mind and speak through my vocal cords? Would it be all of you and none of me? Would you speak grace and good news to your people this morning. Let them hear your voice and not mine. I pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, Matthew chapter five, verse 31. Jesus begins the same way he began, he's began the past couple weeks. It was also said, so he's commenting on something from the Old Testament, okay? Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Okay, the first thing you need to know here is that this is not all Jesus said or all the Bible says about divorce. This statement is kind of a summary 
it's a little, it's a cliff notes version of Jesus' teaching on divorce. He's kind of in the middle of this sermon and he makes this, you know, these two verse statement. And then down the road in Matthew chapter 19, Jesus is asked to extrapolate what he taught on divorce or expand upon what he says here. And there in Matthew, so in Matthew 5, in Matthew 5, 31 and 32, he says something really short about it. And then in Matthew 19, he expands upon what he teaches. So what I want to do is I want to jump ahead to Matthew 19, verses 1 through 9, and I want to read that text. That gives us a little fuller picture of what Jesus teaches. 19, verse 3. And Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him. You can see, tested him, right? By asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause. Now, what's going on here is the rabbis, the Pharisees, had two competing schools of thought when it came to the topic of divorce. Now, I don't have time to go into all of the details, but what they're trying to bring out here is they, they had a different interpretation of Leviticus 24, verse 1, where Moses said, and here's what Moses said, that a man could divorce his wife on grounds of, quote, finding some indecency in her. Well, the key issue was and this is what sinners do. Sinners always find a loophole. This is why the law is never good enough because we're always trying to find ways to get around the law, ways to interpret the law to allow me to do what I want to do. And so what, what was happening with Leviticus, Leviticus 24.1 is they said, okay, well, what does Moses mean by indecency? Right? You had the group on the right, the more conservative rab rabbis, who believed that the word indecency meant adultery, right? meant sexual immorality. So the only reason for divorce was if your wife or your spouse was immoral, that she either had sex, you know, she, she had sex outside of the bounds of marriage, okay? But then you had this group on the left, these Pharisees on the left, who, who said, no, 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 actually what indecency means is anything you don't find enjoyable about your spouse. <laughs> so you literally have in the, the writings of these two schools, those on the left are saying, if she doesn't cook your dinner correctly, you could divorce her, right? Now, what this meant at the time, this was devastating for women, right? Because women were supported by their husbands. And then if a woman was divorced, it became really difficult for her to get remarried. So this was almost an immediate condemnation for her into poverty, right? She had no social security, she had no one to take care of, and this was really destructive for women and women's rights. And so Jesus is caught kind of in the middle of these two competing schools of thought, and you've got these rabbis, you've got these Pharisees that come up to Jesus, and they're not asking him, what's your whole teaching on divorce and marriage? They want to know specifically. They want to put him between a rock and a hard place, choose, are you with the conservative Pharisees or are you with the liberal Pharisees in regards of Levit Leviticus 24.1? So they're basically asking Jesus, how easily should it be to get a divorce and marry someone new?
Now, many of us would ask Jesus the same question today, especially if we've got this underlying belief that we should do what makes us happy, right? You see this in Hollywood, you see this in liberal society, you see this really everywhere in our culture. What's the big deal about divorce. Nobody wants to look at statistics. Nobody wants to look at the ways it's damaging society because we have human happiness and the sexualization of human happiness as our highest ideal. Divorce becomes necessary. Divorce is almost a sacrament to our society, right? If I'm not happy right now, can't I just get a divorce and move on to my next victim? That's what our society believes. Well, this is, this is informative for us of how Jesus answers the question. Let's, let's read. Verse four. Jesus answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning, speaking of God here, speaking of himself, really, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. Now, this is interesting. First, when Jesus is asked about divorce, he doesn't begin with the cultural assumptions or cultural arguments. He doesn't say, well, this is what our culture believes. He doesn't talk about, well, I don't want to be on the wrong side of history. Well, everybody knows. Jesus goes all the way back to creation. When Jesus talks about marriage, he goes all the way back to the beginning when God created them male and female. Many times people say that Jesus didn't teach about homosexuality or homosexual marriage. Yes, he did. Right here, he's doing it. What does Jesus believe about marriage? Marriage is between one man and one woman. When he argues, he goes back to creation, okay? Made the male and female and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What the, therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now this is interesting. When the Pharisees asked Jesus about divorce, Jesus flipped the script and focused on the institution of marriage, right? I'm not gonna talk about divorce until you understand what I believe about marriage. And what does Jesus teach about marriage? Jesus teaches, I could repeat this from last week, one, marriage was created by God. It's not just a human institution. God instituted it. God ordained it. Second, it was meant to be between one man and woman. That's God ordained. That's how God created it. Third, it was meant to be an exclusive, lifelong covenant. A covenant is the deepest of all human agreements. It's uniting yourself totally with another person. You're uniting your families. You're uniting your names. You're uniting your finances. You're uniting your futures. You're uniting your emotions. You're uniting your hopes and and dreams. And then, after you've united all aspects of your humanity, then you unite your physical bodies. We see this when Jesus quotes from Genesis 2, verses 24. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one. That Hebrew word for hold fast is debak, and it literally means to be glued together. Marriage is meant to be an exclusive, lifelong 
committed relationship between one man and one woman glued together for one for life, glued together for life. That is the foundation which the rest of society rests upon. If this foundation is shaky, is torn apart, the rest of society follows. Now, why is that the case? It's the case because the relationship between husband and wife is meant to be the most intimate human relationship in our life and in order for intimacy to take place there must be stability safety vulnerability and fidelity the covenant of marriage is meant to create this type of environment it is two people standing before God saying, I will stay with you no matter what, no matter how I feel. I will love you. I will be faithful to you. I will be honest with you. I will be gentle towards you. I will be here in 50 years loving you through sickness and health for richer or poor till death do us part. Do you see how different that view of marriage is from our culture's view of marriage. There's nothing in there about emotions. There's nothing in there about happiness. There's nothing in there about feelings. Now that's not to say a Jesus-centered marriage isn't happy or isn't enjoyable. Here's what it teaches. The marriage comes first. The commitment comes first. The commitment, the covenant, the marriage, the relationship is primary and feelings are secondary. Feelings are contingent upon the covenant of marriage. The covenant is primary and emotions are secondary. Now what this means is a Christian marriage understands that it can go through years maybe even decades of difficulty, of frustrations, of pains. A Christian marriage can go for a long time very low on the happiness scale. But then they can enter into a new level of happiness that was previously thought impossible because the two kept the relationship centered or the, relation, the, the relationship, the covenant central. They stuck it out. They worked through their issues and they didn't get, give up. And they can enter into a new level of happiness that was previously thought impossible. This is very common for the Christian marriage. Because our personal happiness is not the highest ideal, right? And so we can actually pu push through years, months, decades of difficulty and enter into a new stage of relationship that was only possible because we went through the difficult seasons together. We kept the marriage as covenant primary, not my emotions, my feelings as primary. Now, Jesus begins, when he talks about divorce, when he's asked about divorce, he begins with this understanding of marriage. Now, just one comment. One, one of the reasons I think the marriage and the family is under attack in our society today is because when you destabilize the family, you, you create a bunch of chaos, and then the government has to step in and help. 
Either the society is gonna be destroyed or the government has to step in and help. So we have the government providing for mothers. We have the government providing for children's, we, children. We have the government getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And in a sense, the government becoming God and the government becoming ultimate where everyone now is dependent upon the government and those in office to find their own happiness. I think this is destructive for society. I think we should push away from it. And I think it's another reason why we should get back to God's view of marriage and family. So with this biblical view of marriage, Jesus says to the Pharisees, what God has joined together, let not man separate. Jesus says here, in no uncertain terms, don't get divorced. Specifically in the matters of personal happiness, do not get divorced. Well, then the Pharisees, of course, they're going to follow up um, on their question from Leviticus 24.1. Look at verse 7. Well, they said to him, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate? Look, why did Moses command one, to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away. Je Jesus said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Moses allowed you. Do you see that? Why did Moses, the, the, the Pharisee said, why did Moses command? Jesus says, no, 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 Moses allowed you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning, goes back to creation, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual morality and marries another commits adultery. Okay, Moses made a concession with the people because of their, quote, hardness of heart. Because of they were hard-hearted, they were bent on sinning, and so because they were, he made a concession for them um, to, to write a certificate of divorce and divorce their wife if she was um, immoral. If she was immoral, if she sinned, and they didn't want to forgive, and they didn't want to work through it, they had hard hearts, you can divorce your wife. But here's what's interesting. What Moses had given as a concession, the Pharisees had turned into a command. And Jesus and scripture never command anyone to get a divorce. Scripture never speaks positively about divorce. It is always a concession made because of the sinfulness and the brokenness and the hard-heartedness of human beings. And in Matthew 5 and in Matthew 19, Jesus says the one exception is that of sexual immorality. That's the concession Jesus makes here. The Greek word for sexual morality is pornea, where we get our word pornography from. And Jesus says divorce on the grounds of sexual morality is not prohibited. It is a concession. Now, listen, Jesus is not commanding to get a divorce. So if your spouse were to cheat on you and to commit immorality or commit adultery, Jesus is not saying, because they've done that, therefore you need to go and get a divorce. Right? It's not an automatic. It's a concession. The first command for us is to reconcile, is to seek forgiveness, is to seek grace, is to repent and seek restoration and to be reconciled to with one another in the power of the gospel. That's the first goal, but sometimes that is not possible. Maybe the one person 
commits immorality and then leaves and doesn't come back. Maybe that person is unrepentant. Maybe that's been a long-term deceit, years and years of, of going on, and this person and this person can't trust that person. There's a lot of different reasons that this concession can be used. Now, I do need to say one thing. Remember, Jesus isn't here just teaching on divorce. He's responding to a very specific interpretation of Leviticus 24 verse one, right? That's what he's doing. So he's, when he says the only reason one can get a divorce is sexual morality, we could say, well, is, we could just logically think out, isn't there a couple other reasons or a few other reasons that, that make sense? And we would say, yeah, actually there are. Um, and actually th that wasn't up for debate. Everyone knew from the reading of the Old Testament that there were a couple other reasons people could get divorced. One was clearly through abuse. If you're, mar if you're married to a spouse who, who is abusing you, divorce is permitted, right? D divorce is a concession. Um, Exodus uh, talks about this in the law. Also, um, there was another concession for just abandonment. If your husband just left or your wife just left and abandoned you, divorce was a concession in that instance as, all, as also. And that's repeated in 1 Corinthians. I think it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So the Pharisees here weren't debating those. They already knew those. In the cases of abuse or abandonment, divorce was permitted. But Jesus also wants us to see that, you know, adultery is a concession for divorce. So what do we believe at Sacred City? We believe that adultery, abuse, and abandonment are concessions made where divorce is permissible, right? Divorce for any other reason, Jesus says, results in adultery. So Jesus does not say that you can get divorced just because things have gotten difficult, just because you've fallen out of love with one another, just because you guys are going in different directions. No, Jesus says you, it's permissible to get a divorce for the reason of abandonment, abuse, and adultery, and that's it. Now, there's one more thing I want you to think about. For the Christian, marriage is meant to be a picture a metaphor for Christ's love for us, his church, his bride. We see this in Ephesians 5, 22 through 23. I want us to think about that. I want us to work out some of the implications of that. Our marriages, our covenant between our hus the husband and the wife is meant to look like God's love for us, God's relationship, his covenant with us as his church. See, God makes a covenant with us. God chooses to love us and unite himself to us. And how do we respond to that? Well, honestly, if you really look at it, we probably embraced him, but then what else do we do? We reject him. We walk away from him. We ignore him. We give our heart to other things. He is our creator. He is our sustainer. He is the lover of our soul. And what, do, what have we done to him? We've turned our backs on him and we've given our love to another. We give our devotion, our passion, our worship, our strength to created things over and above him. Do you see what that is? That is no less than spiritual adultery. 
the one who loves us most, the one who's made a covenant with us, the one who's given us his one-way love and he sent his son, his son to, to prove his love to us, to purchase us as his bride, we ignore him and turn our backs on him and we go and we love other things more than we love him. That is no less than being sexually immoral with someone other than your spouse. It literally is spiritual adultery. Every one of us, if we're honest, if we can examine our hearts and our desires and our loves, we've betrayed God and we've broken our covenant with him a thousand times over. We've cheated on him a thousand times over. And here's the question. How does God respond to us when we commit adultery on him? God as the perfect husband, remains faithful to us. He remains faithful to his covenant, even when we are not. God forgives us, God pursues us, God gives us grace, and you know what that means? That means as we experience that kind of grace from God, we, can, we are empowered to give that kind of grace to our spouse when they fail us. Now, I have known many Christian marriages who have lasted and persisted through adultery and have even came out on the other side better than when they went in. Now, that, the, the spouse who was sinned against could have easily thrown their hands up and walked away and went and looked for their next victim. Right? went and looked for their next spouse. They would have had biblical justification to do that. But instead, because of the power of the gospel, they said, you know what, I've sinned against God and I've received grace and so my spouse has sinned, sinned against me, but I can give them grace in this moment. Now the spouse was repentant, the spouse was seeking grace, the spouse was wanting restoration and they worked through a year, years long process of forgiving and being forgiven and asking for grace and giving grace and earning trust back and rebuilding the marriage. And that marriage is way stronger today than it was before. And that marriage stayed intact and that family stayed intact and God gets the glory for that. See, the gospel forgives. The gospel heals the gospel reconciles parties that are at odds with one another. This is another reason why God says in Malachi that he hates divorce. See, the gospel takes parties that are opposed to one another, parties that sin against one another, and it brings them together, and it brings healing. Divorce is anti-gospel. Divorce takes something that was united and tears it apart take something that was glued together and rips it asunder. Divorce destroys God's covenant. Divorce destroys God's creation. Divorce is an anti-gospel that divides what God has brought together. So, by way of summary, what does the Bible teach about divorce? What does Jesus teach about divorce? The Bible teaches that in the cases of adultery, abandonment, or abuse, the innocent spouse 
should first primarily seek re reconciliation. But if reconciliation cannot be made, that innocent spouse, as a concession, can seek a divorce and they are free to remarry after that. Now, hear me. Forgiveness and reconciliation should be the primary objective in the spirit of the gospel under the guidance of the elders. But as a concession, divorce is given. Divorce is an option. Now, listen. I can't answer all of your questions in the sermon on divorce because as the hardness of our own heart and the repercussions of sin take place, our families, our society, our churches, our, we have all kinds of different mistakes and, and we're so many different iterations and now, well, I was married and then I got a divorce and I married that person and now I've got a divorce here and now I'm trying to seek, seeking this marriage, so what should I do? Should I divorce my wife and go back to my old wife? What, how, what? There's all, I mean, it gets really confusing, right? And so I, I'm not even going to attempt to get down in the weeds of all of that. I just, want to see, I just want us to see the big picture. God values the covenant of marriage more than our personal happiness. God wants us to do the hard thing, the necessary thing, the right thing, and stick it out in our marriages even when we're not being personally fulfilled or emotionally fulfilled in the moment. And we want, he, we want, he wants us to trust him that he's doing something good in us and good in our spouse and he's gonna work in us through the power of the gospel that we're gonna get through this tough season by living in community and on mission with God's people. That's one of the means of grace. And we're gonna, we're gonna get through this tough spot and we're gonna enter, enter into a season in the future where we're gonna flourish, where our marriage is gonna flourish, our family's gonna flourish and the hopes of God, our church is gonna flourish and our, and our society's gonna flourish. And so I want us as a church to focus on that. We're not I don't want to focus on divorce. I want us to focus on marriage, focus on the good of marriage. And I want us to build really strong marriages in the power of the gospel. So that's what I'm hoping for us. So listen, if you've been divorced, God has grace for you. God has mercy for you. God has kindness for you. Your divorce might have been on inappropriate grounds, right? And you should repent and seek, and seek the Lord's grace on that. You should get advice from the elders on how to move forward with that. Whether you should seek to be remarried or whether you, whether you shouldn't. Your divorce, divorce might have taken place before you were Christian. And that's, you know, before you were under the blood of Jesus. I understand all of that. There's lots of implications to it. So I want you to know that there's grace for you. There's mercy for you. There's God's kindness for you. And human flourishing awaits us in the future as we obey God and as we live our lives the way Jesus calls us to live, the way he created us to live. So let me pray for us. Father, I just pray that you would speak good news to your people, that they would hear your voice through this sermon. That marriage is a beautiful thing. It's a difficult thing at times. It's not easy, but it, there's a beauty to it. Um, and uh, you don't want us to treat it lightly and you don't want us to, to, to divorce because it destroys that institution and it, it's an anti-gospel. So would you help us love what you love and live how you've called us to live and when we fail to do it, we once again return to the gospel and be reminded that we're loved, we're forgiven, we're brought into the family not because of our own work but because of the work of Jesus on our behalf and we stand righteous before the throne of God because Jesus puts his righteousness on us. We thank you for this. In Jesus' powerful name I pray.
Amen and amen.